What is up, everybody? I'm Jason Trost, the host of Business of Betting Podcast. I'm joined today by Joel Simpkins, uh, an investment banker, advisor, investment banker, ex- investment banker, advisor, investment banker. jack of all trades. From Houlihan Loki. Uh, he's been in the industry for ages. Um, welcome to the podcast, Joel. Great to be here, Jason. I feel like we've been here before. We've been here before, but uh, it's, you know, it's, it's always good the second time around is what I, what I say. So let's start with your background. Uh, let's, let's do a little bit of psychoanalysis with your background. You know, uh, 25 years around the gaming industry, I fell into the sector literally out of college. It was my ninth and last interview at Moody's in 1998. I happened to be in front of the gaming bond analyst at the time, and I pretty much begged him for a job. And then 25 years later, I've, I found myself you know, in this industry for the rest of my career. I spent the first 17 years as an equity research analyst, as well as spent some time on the buy side as a hedge fund investor, uh, most recently Credit Suisse. Crossed over to the investment banking world about uh, seven plus years ago at what was SunTrust Robinson Humphrey and built out their gaming uh, investment banking efforts. And came to Houlihan Loki almost a year ago uh, to actually sit in our technology group. Uh, I'm probably the only investment banker on Wall Street sitting in, in the technology group, which is interesting and really focused on the digital transformation of the industry. You don't do any hotels? I'm out of the hotel business now. It's very simple. I just focus on everything gaming, sports betting, online gaming, a little bit of bricks and mortar land-based gaming, but there's just so much interesting stuff going on in our neck of the woods now. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure there's historical reasons for it, but it always blows my mind how hotel restaurants always get lumped in with sports betting because they do not seem like uh, good bedfellows. Yeah. And listen, I, I, I'm fortunate by divine providence to live in New Jersey. So next to you know the UK, it's the epicenter of gaming here in the US. So I was a, certainly an early adopter on sports betting and online gaming platforms here in New Jersey by good fortune. I probably have every sports book on my phone here and it allows me to really have my you know finger you know on the pulse of what's going on in the industry with all the latest, greatest innovation because it typically launches at least here in the US in New Jersey. So I usually ask this question at the end, but since you said it was your ninth interview and that's the one you got, what did you what, what did you want to be? What did you want to be I was, when you grew up? I wasn't too choosy. I was looking for any job uh, on Wall Street. I was uh, certainly you know at a non-target school. Um, I went to Hofstra University. It turned out okay, but you know they were the world was not beating a path to my door despite good grades and and uh, you know lots of uh, summer internships. I, I I had a really slow start myself. I remember I went to university uh, college between ninety nine and two thousand three, and everybody kept talking about this thing called iBanking. banking. And I think for three or four years, I literally thought iBanking banking meant internet banking. You know, like you would go on the internet and bank. And I had no idea what an investment banker was. It probably wasn't until like my mid to late twenties I learned what an investment banker was. And then like you know all my um you know, fastidious and diligent um, uh, classmates were applying for consulting jobs and, and investment banking jobs. I, you know, I didn't plan. And then the last minute I took a, I applied for a stock trading job and, you know, it was kind of a last minute thing. So I ended up being a stock trader out of all things, but it's really kind of funny how, ra- how, um, how much randomness, uh, you know, dictates your life story. Yeah, I mean, I would I sometimes tell folks I'm the accidental investment banker. And again, I got this call out of left field and in 2016, it was like, hey, Joel, you've been around the gaming industry for a long time. You knew everybody. You've got this Rolodex. 
have you ever thought about going into investment banking? And I was like, wow, I, I've pretty much driven most investment bankers crazy my entire career as an equity research analyst because I was very known when I was an analyst for putting sell ratings on stocks. And once in a while, I got them right. Um, I had this career-defining call at the time back in, I think, 2006, putting a sell on IGT, which at that time had like 75% market share in slot machines. And I made this bold call that, hey, they were going to lose share and that this investment they were making in server-based gaming, which which exists now that feeds all games onto at least iGaming platforms, that uh, was not going to happen at that point, at least in the physical world. And that was very controversial. I had the only sell rating on the street. And um, I fortunately was right. And that, that helped uh, differentiate me from the, uh, the, my competition. One of my favorite podcasts is the all in podcast. And one of the guys on there is a venture capitalist and they did an analysis of the best venture capitalists. And the, the analysis kind of came up, you know, the top of the top, at least based on the success that they've had measurable success that they've had in the past, the best VCs were, were, equity analysts, as opposed to what I would have guessed, and this person would have guessed, Chamath Papayatia, they would have guessed that, uh, you know, more technical engineering types would be more um, better at picking winners. And the, the argument being that equity analysts really understand the key drivers of a business. And those at the end of the day is what makes business thrive. Do you, do you, do you, with your background in equity, uh, analysis, do you think that that is a good education and that's a good, um, if you had to pick a VC who is like a super big product expert versus a, a like dollars and cents equity analyst, who would you back? <laughs> I would, you know, I think it's really a case by case basis. I think, you know, the beauty of my job in my old career and even my job currently as a banker is I get to meet, you know, dozens upon dozens of companies, right. And hear the best ideas and you know, typically we're we're under an NDA, right? And obviously, I keep my uh, information very confidential, and what goes on between me and the client stays between me and the client. But I get a lot. Uh, I get a, a big chance to look at a lot of different businesses and evaluate them against peers in their space or doing what they're doing. So, yeah, I'm certainly not a technology expert. I'm not going to be writing code and getting deep under the hood. But I really have a sense of sort of where is the market at? Where is it going? Uh, who's doing things differently. So I, yeah, I think there is some advantage in what we do as bankers. And again, going back to my former research analyst career, being very inquisitive. And I think what differentiates me, at least from my competitors, again, is I'm all in. I've got every sports book and online gaming app on my phone. I, I probably gamble more than I need to. Not certainly not a, a problem gambler, but you know, I definitely want to try out the product and really understand how folks are doing things differently versus the competition. So do you do that for, do you do, do, um, are you a sports fan yourself or, or do you do it more for, to be good at your job? Yeah. I mean, huge sports fan, uh, you know, grew up, uh, one of those, one of those kids in the late eighties that was, uh, trading baseball cards. And again, you look back to that time frame. I probably was understanding, although I didn't understand it back when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, but I was engaging in, you know, comparative valuation, right? So when I'm sitting down and selling a company to a potential buyer, Right. I'm saying here are the comps, right? Here's here's Don Mattingly versus Wade Box. Here's who's hit more home runs or got on base more or more steals. Right. So it's that analysis and co comparison of different businesses and business models that I guess was intuitive a long time ago. So as somebody that 
you know, has the luck to live in New Jersey. I mean, it's it's, it's actually as somebody that lives in Europe, uh, it's quite hard to test these things. Like, w- which apps do you like and which ones don't you like? What are what are some of your favorites? You know, I mean, I think there's just a lot of interesting things going on right now. I mean, I personally, I've obviously tried all the traditional sportsbook products. You know, whether it's uh, DraftKings or BetMGM, etc. I find, you know, actually your business and the exchange betting product very interesting and intriguing. I feel like the consumer is ultimately going to care about price and value and best execution. So I think we're still early days here in the U.S., but I think, you know, three to five years from now, some of these states start to mature and people advance in what they're up to. You know, I, I would certainly be interested in seeing how the things like a sport trade, a profit exchange or a mojo are able to scale. Um, I've been actually, you know, pretty intrigued by some of the sweepstakes businesses that are out there, some of the fa- fantasy sports businesses, you know, whether it's the prize picks or underdogs, you've got Fliff, um, which is a very interesting, you know, skill-based social um, product. So there's a lot of in- innovation going on. And I also find, you know, just the analysis tools out there, again, certainly given that I'm betting on lots of platforms, there's a number of apps that allow you here to aggregate your activity and actually truly get a real-time look on what people are gambling on, as well as what your performance looks like. So there's an app called Picket that I've been using quite a bit that's only been up and running for probably less than six months, but it's been top 50 in the app store. So it's getting a lot of use and it's become quite viral. And that is almost becoming your sort of my day-to-day homepage for my betting activity and seeing what folks are uh, doing what the betting calendar looks like, and again, whether I'm winning or not. <laughs> and so, P- Picket basically grabs all of your PLs from the different sport. Does it do screen scraping, or does it have deals with all these companies? Yeah, I believe they've got some technology that allows them to get a- under the hood with these different platforms, right? So there's a- there's an agreement, there's a bet aggregation syncing tool. Um, you know, I think there's a few there are a few groups that are out there that are able to. Uh, engage in this technology. Uh, I think it's again early, early days. So you said you um, you believe that the exchange uh, model has a lot of green grass, I guess, to grow. Uh, but when, you, like, let's say the the final four is coming around the corner, um, and you pick up the phone and you want to place a bet as a as a punter, not as an investment banker. What um, what app do you pick up? Do you do you price shop or do you do? You, is there one that you prefer? You know, I think, listen, as you're probably well aware in Europe, right, everybody's got, call it three to five books on their phone. I think people will certainly um, jump around depending on what the offer is. So, right, so if I'm going to do a mainstream bet on one of those platforms, it's going to be your typical bet MGM, Caesars, DK, Flutter, um, or FanDuel. So I, I think people will price shop. But, you know, what? going back to our earlier discussion about, you know, Am I visiting hotels and covering lodging anymore? You know, I, I really look at this business just like, you know, OTAs back in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Consumers are going to want to price shop. They're, wanna, they're going to want to get best value. And I think, you know, brand certainly matters early days to attract the customer. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's going to come down to a more of a commoditized best execution pricing experience. And again, that's back to my earlier comment on the exchanges. I think that, is, to your point, has some green grass, but it's early days, right? We've only launched here in New Jersey uh, from an exchange betting perspective. There's also new technologies like a Mojo. That's an athlete stock market that I find myself on for a really 
a different type of experience. They're they're offering some some prop bets now and and other sort of um, higher volatility, shorter duration plays. But at the same token, you can actually uh, you know kind of create your own investment portfolio based upon certain athletes and players. So that's something I've been uh, pretty engaged in, quite frankly, in the last six months. I'm a I'm a suffering Jets fan, but I was able to buy Mike White very cheaply, which is a Anybody listening to the UK, he was sort of this bench warmer that came off the bench and had a really nice run for a number of games. So I was able to make an investment in him, make you know four hundred percent on a speculative basis very quickly, and then you know punch out when he was uh, you know once again injured. So talk to me about Mojo. Um, I'm not super familiar with it, but it's basically kind of um, you buy an interest in a player. How how did they set the price? <laughs> that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. I would say there there is a calculation, and it's typically for offensive players. So right now they've only launched football, I believe, basketball. Actually, basketball launched about a month ago, but I think basketball and other games, baseball will will come over time. So there's a, there's a calculation based upon the player's historical performance, their projected value. So a little bit of speculation, as really again, if you're let's say you're a wide receiver in the NFL, right? There's a calculation based upon number of catches, yards, touchdowns, things like that. Um, so, you know, the, I've I've found that there's been some opportunity in, in investing in the backup quarterback, hypothetically, right? Let's say uh, uh, again back investing. to the New York. Investing. Yes, <laughs> back uh-huh. back to the New York Jets. You know, there's uh-huh. uh, we're hopefully What's your sharp uh, ratio. Yeah, we're possibly going to be getting Aaron Rodgers. We'll see, but. Um, interestingly enough, I, I, I bet or invested in Jordan Love. Jordan Love's been like a three-year backup quarterback on the Packers. If you look at his stock price on Mojo, it's actually gone pretty exponential in the last you know couple of months, really based upon the expectation, again, future value that he's going to play uh, more frequently and his metrics are going to go up. So no different if you think about that than investing maybe in a high-flying growth stock, right? You think, XYZ company is going to make a lot of money in the future. They're going to bring a new client on, or it's a biotech company that's going to take off, right? It's the same sort of uh, notion around that. Yeah. I'm not suggesting there's any relation, but there was a, there's a company that did something similar in the UK called Football Index, which ended up getting over their skis. And I, I don't know if it was fraud or Ponzi scheme or something, but I, I think you sort of get in danger of, of how is the value created and destroyed. Um, are you familiar with their their? You know mechanic? that if not, we can, that name we can... has actually come up and in, uh, in our conversations. I've spent a bunch of time with Mojo's management. Um, you know what I find interesting about them, besides the fact that they had raised a lot of capital. You know, I think a hundred million dollars in twenty twenty one, and some notable investors like A Rod and other celebrities. Um, you know, no offense to the twenty something year olds running a lot of sports betting online gaming businesses, but. You know, the folks that are running Mojo have a little bit of gray hair, like like yours truly, as well as yourself. And um, they actually, uh, the co-founder, um, one, one co-founder came from, I think, some time back at Google and is really a product guy. But the other one, a guy named Vinit Barrara, uh, was the co-founder of diapers.com, right, which monetized Amazon, you know, back in the early, I'll call it the mid-aughts for a pretty big number. So they're, they really, this is almost like a bit of a passion play for them. They're big sports fans themselves. They had an idea, I think, around baseball cards in the late 90s. And this is now, you know, the technology is there now to facilitate this, which is interesting. I, I see why you're excited. Bringing those baseball cards yeah. out of the basement, huh? They're still collecting dust in my parents' house. So one day I'll monetize them. 
Put some gloves on. Put some gloves on. I'm really curious. I think because you are a sports fan, you live in New Jersey, and you know you have a professional interest in trying all these. I think you're in a very unique position to to comment on it. So how would you come? Like, I mean, there's a obvious. There's been a duopoly that's uh, emerged in the in the U.S. between FanDuel and DraftKings. Um, my outside position and and granted it's i have used them but it's hard for me to use them being abroad and you know when i'm in america in certain states i can use them but uh being in europe it's difficult um my and my sense is they're sort of like um the early successes in the internet you know like the yahoos and the pets.coms and you know like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like those kinds of like, you know, they they have their moment, but you know, we'll look at FanDuel like we look at Sears today or something like that. Do you like is that do you see it like that or do you think uh FanDuel and DraftKings will maintain their duopoly for the next 5 to 10 years? Yeah, well, I you know, that's a great question. Listen, I I do think we're 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 going to going to see a shakeout at some point in the future. Right. You've seen capital you you've seen capital spent with reckless abandon in the last couple of years, right? So we're at this point with interest rates rising with some uncertainty around the economy where the ability to invest is going to be more restrained and you're gonna have some winners and losers. So is is it a perfect analogy to, to what we saw in the early dot coms? No. Um, you know, they certainly have used their prior access to capital to build significant market share. But what's different versus Europe where, you know, again, you've got one, you know, set of regulations per country, right? Here we've got 50 states. There's call it 36 or 37 where OSB is legal right now. Every state's got its own nuances. There's some big states out there like California, Florida, Texas, Georgia that are unsettled. We don't know what the competitive dynamics look and look like in those markets. Like let's let's talk about, for instance, Georgia, right? Price picks is the eight hundred pound gorilla in fantasy sports. They've got a massive user base, they've got a great brand, they're based in Georgia. Let's say hypothetically OSB is legalized in Georgia. They might ultimately be a much bigger player in that market than some of the other names that you reference. So I, I still think, listen, we're early days. There will be a shakeout. But I think from your perspective, you're right. I mean, that the technology that you see in a lot of these jurisdictions, even DraftKings, right? It's the legacy SB Tech product. You look at Caesars, it's legacy William Hill, 20-year-old technology, right? There's going to be an evolution. These products still need to be, to be refreshed and, and mature. And I think those that can truly innovate and differentiate, back to my earlier comment on like a sport trade where... For me, it's hands down kind of the best, you know, UX in the space. It's simple, it's intuitive, it's it's pretty clean. Um, I think the the product innovation is truly going to win in the long term. So, you know, my day job is running markets, and so I don't get a lot of time to do this. But I assume in your in your shoes, you will spend time looking over the numbers of Flutter, um, Flutter, FanDuel, and DraftKings since they're all publicly traded companies. Um, I believe Flutter is claiming they'll be profitable by the end of this year. I'm not sure when DraftKings is. When's DraftKings uh, claiming to be profitable? You... Um, unclear. I mean, I would say unclear. probably heading that way in 2024. <laughs> I'm not as up on their day-to-day public statements. But you know, you look at like let's say a, a Fanduel or Flutter. Right? I mean, the, the beauty for uh, a Flutter is they've got a lot of big mature businesses uh, in Europe already. They're spitting off lots of cash, right? So they can use those platforms to fund this U.S. rollout. 
you know, will they get to profitability on a standalone basis this year? You know, potentially, you know, that's probably realistic given their scale and given their market yeah, share. I was going to ask, really- do you believe them when they say that? Like, would you buy, would you buy that trade or would you, would you think that's marketing? Yeah, I don't have a view on the individual stocks, but I would say, you know, it would make some sense given the the way the winds are blowing. It seems like everybody in 2023, the first word out of their mouth is profitability. Uh, it's it's rational, more rational behavior on marketing and customer acquisition. So, you know, I think folks are finding some religion that, you know, I used to live in Hoboken, New Jersey, and you would just get off the path train and the entire train was inundated with pick your sports book of the month that was advertising there. You turn on the television, it's sign up and get X hundred dollars for free, right? You're seeing that stuff, that sort of very aggressive customer acquisition behavior dialed back. And I I think that's a good thing. I think people know what apps are out there. Um, They know where to find an app to download and you don't necessarily need to uh, give away or light money on fire uh, to get them to sign up. So your day job is M and A. Um, let's let's pivot to M and A. So do you? I don't know. Do you represent Entain or PointsBet, for example? I do not. I do not. Okay. But I'm so can you follow the industry? Yeah. So let's let's take PointsBet as an example. Um, well, yeah. Why don't you tee up PointsBet uh, for those because they have an, um they started in Australia, expanded to the U.S. Why don't Why don't you tee that up for the audience? Yeah, I mean, you know, they've they've been out there for a number of years. They're publicly traded. Um, you know, certainly not aware of anything going on right now. But there's you read read the headlines and see some of the rumors and different trade rags out there. You know, PointsBet had a very uh, nice market share and, and sort of good product and some innovation with their points betting, spread betting product. They were actually a first mover here in the U.S., uh, particularly New Jersey. I got to know some of the key executives that were running the business. Uh, for them here uh, in the U.S. when they were just launching. So they had a first mover advantage. They had a partnership, a, a big capital raise, I think, with NBC Universal. So certainly helped them generate eyeballs and some awareness early on. I think the challenge for PointsBet is, you know, maybe you know, back to our earlier .com 1.0 discussion, right? Just because you're the first mover doesn't always you're gonna mean you're going to be the winner. So I, I think, you know, they started to make some headway, develop some market share, I don't think their spread betting product really caught on the way I thought it could. Um, so that di- that potential point of differentiation didn't really uh, allow them to get a huge lead. And then simultaneously in that call it 2020, 21, kind of post-pandemic period, that's when you saw that meteoric rise of, of the DraftKings and FanDuel's and BetMGM really gaining traction. So, you know, I guess in, in essence, they were the first wave um, you know, could they be an acquisition target? We'll see. I don't again don't have any direct information or review on that. Um, you know, but again, I think right now, if folks can find discipline on marketing, um, kind of live to fight another day. That's what I'm telling a lot of folks right now is maybe do that down round, raise capital where you can, when you can, and hopefully we come out on the other side of this with more states opening up iGaming, obviously, you know, in discussion in a number of additional jurisdictions. And that would allow a lot of these companies that have big market share or awareness or user base to ultimately inflect and get more profitable. So if you were to sort of, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, look at PointsBet's strategy in a little bit more detail, you know, like on paper, they had so much going for them, right? They, they were, they became publicly listed. I don't know if they listed as part of the SPAC wave or, or they just did it in Australia. But in any case, they had access to the public markets, you know, during the frothy years so they could have 
sold equity at a at a frothy valuation. They did that uh, that that tier one deal, I guess you could call it, with NBC for um, exposure. Uh, like you said, they had first mover advantage. Um, they had a unique selling proposition, this thing called points bet, uh, spread betting or contract for difference, um, which isn't very popular in the United States, but could be like, where do you think they went wrong or, or, you know, did they run into the, is there, is their brand off? Is a product off? Is there, what do you think? Or do you think that they, they, well, how would you assess them after the fact? You know, Again, I'm not deep in the weeds on them, but I think about their efforts here in the U.S. I mean, one, they raised a lot of money, but it was still small in terms of the grand scheme of the war chest that the other guys were able to throw at it, right? So, you know, when they were getting going, they had this sort of moment, you know, in the sun where they were ahead of the traditional land-based operators, right? And then, you know, MGM and Caesars, and I know all these teams well, started to figure out and said, hey, we're going to go chase this wave, right? So they started pouring money in. So, you know, let's say if they had raised 500 million, right, that's peanuts compared to the billions that other folks that the mainstream bricks and mortar guys were able to throw at it. And then also it was a bit of a spray and pray, you know, effort. It was let's go into a lot of markets. Let's get up. Let's get a lot of licenses very quickly. You know, I I would say, I think a lot of sports books, if you go back and rewind the clock to that 2020, 2021 period, people spent way too much money on market access, right? So whenever I'm sitting down with a startup and they're saying, hey, we want to go into OSB, we want to enter this market, it's like, be judicious. You will find these market access agreements a lot cheaper. The price is only going to come down. So I've advised a few companies that have looked at buying some of these uh, light market access agreements or buying kind of the dead carcass of a failed sports book and said, listen, just, just wait. Uh, it, the price will come down. So again, if you look back to maybe points, why didn't you call me three years ago, Joe, (laughs) we didn't know each other. You should have called me. (laughs) I would have said, wait, there's going to be a lot of folks that don't make it. I said, no, I want to spend too much money on something. that's silly. Yeah, listen, it was a, it was your gold rush, you know, mentality here. I no no shame to to you, Jason. Can't win them all. At least I, in hindsight, at least I only did two states. I remember when we raised the when we raised our series B in the mid 2021, I was like, let's go do six states and I'm like, oh my god, I'm so glad we did not do that. Um because the the payments for those is just such an albatross. Massive. To come, yeah, you know, it's, it's a big it's, debt obligation. It's insane. So Okay, so you your hypothesis, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that they didn't raise enough money. Didn't raise enough money, or maybe spent too much money. But right, there's you know there's a lot of companies that are in the same bucket right now, and that's for me putting putting my investment banker hat. On, I mean, that's really a great setup for me at, at Hulahan Loki. Is you know we're in sort of the hundred million to billion dollar transaction size. So there's a lot of fallen unicorns and angels that suddenly you know, need our help and maybe they're too small for the traditional, you know, large, you know, bulge bracket investment bank, right? So it means that my phone has actually been ringing off the hook quite a bit in the last, you know, six months with folks that need help. So it's pretty interesting times. And I think we're on that precipice here and, you know, call it first quarter of 2023, 
where the M&A activity is likely going to accelerate, you know, over the next six to 12 months. So if you think 500 million, you know, wasn't a crack at the top tier, you know, what do you say to companies like Smarkets? You know, we've raised $35 million. Do you say like, we have no chance? Like, like, I'm sure you, I'm sure you get startups calling you and being like, Joel, we need money and, and uh, we want to get into the space and we have this awesome idea. What, I mean, what do you tell them? I would say one, you know, find your lane, find your real point of differentiation. And I think also, listen, while, you know, the capital markets are are tighter right now, you know, we actually put out a primer a few months ago, kind of sort of our outlook for the industry going forward. And we talked about the fact that sort of the fear of getting licensing and going through their probity is is dissipating, right? So you're seeing, you know, whether it's the endeavors of the world, I think there's a next wave that's coming over the next couple of years of traditional big media companies, whether it's the IACs or the Liberty Medias, go down the list, who say, hey, listen, this TAM, you know, in OSB and iGaming, it's substantial. It's only going to grow. It's very mainstream. So I think there's a different wave of investment coming in the next couple of years where some of these other folks just say, hey, the market is too substantial to ignore. Um, you know, let's say you were a, a fintech business, like let's say hypothetically, and this is me speculating, let's just say like a, a Robin Hood or a traditional, you know, um, you know, uh, investing platform, maybe we're a more modern investment platform that's forward looking, you know, could see this space given that there most of these folks have significant financial and regulatory licenses and say, hey, it's not a big leap for me to cross over into gaming. I'm not saying uh, crypto is getting involved. I was one of those folks that was chuckling when I heard of FTX coming in the gaming space that didn't seem real to me. But, um, you know, I think folks that are used to getting licensed and other uh, adjacent categories could find themselves in this industry. So I, my advice would be, let's try to find you a strategic partner that can help you grow and execute. So, so you're basically implying that going it alone is not viable. Um, right now, if you're going to go all in guns blazing, you know, unless you're uh, again, back to a mojo who, you know, very seasoned entrepreneurs, you've raised a lot of capital, have a lot of capital behind them, who've monetized, right? If you're some brand new startup without a track record, I think you've got to tread very carefully. And I also think, you know, back to my earlier comments, right? There are other businesses out there that are not necessarily operators that are adjacent to the industry. So back to the the pickets of the world where maybe you are really, you're either a B2B game content provider, you're sort of an affiliate platform, you're this bet tracking, social media, Twitter proxy for sports betting. There's other businesses that, um, you know, can be substantial and have a sort of a pulse on the industry without necessarily being an operator. Pivoting to regulation, one of my pet peeves in the industry, uh, and I'm, you know, I've already lost this battle, but you know, I'm going to use my platform to talk about it, which is basically that, you know, I think it's absolutely insane that to do online sports betting, you have to get a license through a land-based operator. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think that's just sort of like, do you think that's a, a grave injustice or do you think that's just sort of like the local lay of the land and, and uh, deal with it? I think that's ultimately the the local the lay, lay of the land here. We've, you know, you and I have spoken before about sort of the Sears, Kmart, Walmart, you know, quandary in, in gaming. And I think just, listen, this is how it's developed here in New Jersey and spawned to other states. 
if you're a new jurisdiction, you're looking at the existing markets that are out there and the existing set of regulations saying a lot easier to go copy, paste, replace, and just uh, follow that model. So yes, I think the, the, the bricks and mortar operators are going to be protected to some degree, but given that these skins are really increasingly commoditized, um, I do think the pricing is going to come down over time, and we're already seeing examples of that. But the land base, you, you foresee for the foreseeable future that the land base operators will be the gatekeepers. More than likely, right? And, you know, you know, the big states that are coming potentially, whether it's Texas, Florida, California, that's a whole different conversation. Some of those states, for instance, like California, right, there's, let's call it hundreds of, of Native American tribes. Very few of them uh, see eye to eye. Uh, there's also incumbent horse track, horse track operators and other interests that are going to want to have sort of a seat at the table, right? So it, it could be it, it, it could be quite complex to see some of these markets unfold. But in a place like California, there could be hundreds of potential competitors, right? So it could make for a, a much more robust competitive environment, no different than your experience in the UK, where you've just got lots of operators out there fighting for market share versus a handful, you know, in New York, my neighboring state, you know, five or six who were able to pay the toll. Yeah. The, ultimately, I think it, the consumer is the one who ends up losing. Like the, the higher the barriers to entry for startups to get into the space, uh, you know, ultimately um, it's, it's sad for the consumer because they suffer from choice and price and all those kinds of things. I think that's one of the hidden costs of Regulation, you know, not to sound like a Republican, because um, I'm not a Republican, but I do believe that, you know, if you put, if the regulation has unnecessary barriers to doing business, and and I think in the in the case of sports betting, in particular, the the regulation generally is bad. Um, it's onerous. It's esoteric. It doesn't really get to the to the heart of what's important and not important, the background checks, all those kinds of things. Like, I think the intent is good, but the execution is very, very poor. Um, and it makes it hard for a business like us to, to survive. And, and then you add the layer of market access. To me, it's just sort of a, you know, America is kind of going out of its way to really screw the consumer over, unfortunately. Um, that plus you, the more you regulate in an inefficient um improper way, the more you kind of give credence to the offshore operators that get to skip all that stuff. And, you know, like just a small example, but, you know, American operators aren't allowed to give credit. Um, you're not allowed to give credit in the, in the UK either. And not, not to say that that's like on the top wish list of, um, of things I want to offer my customers, but, you know, if somebody is a customer in good standing and, you know, they don't have a problem and it's their thing. Like, why not offer credit? You know, banks offer credit all the time. Like, why? What's so weird about offering credit in the sports betting industry? You, you must have been listening to one of the conversations I had with a dad the other night. I was at a I was at a fundraiser for my daughter's preschool the other night. And I was talking to one of the other dads and he knows what I do for a living. And um, was, you know, we were talking about sports betting and it was I think it was you know, Friday night. There were some March Madness games going on. And I was like, well, where do you gamble? And then he pulls up his phone <laughs> and shows me some offshore casino. And he said, I'm betting here because they're offering me credit. Uh, I can get my money in and out. I, I can do whatever I want, blah, 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 blah. And, and I was like, wow. I mean, why would you do that? You're, you know, you're very well educated. You're successful. It's a little 
it's a little shady. I wouldn't really trust my money there. And I pulled out my phone and showed him, here's five sports books you should be trying out. So I was, I was doing a little bit of advocating, but you know, you're right. And it's something we talked about in our primer here, at least here in the U.S., I think the industry needs to find its voice. You need to get the land-based operators together with the new emerging upstarts and really you know, lobby regulars and say, hey, we've got this massive offshore market here. We've got other gray areas of gaming. People aren't paying taxes. You know, there's this money isn't being tracked. You know, I feel like the U.S. government could shut down these offshore sites easily. Um, and, you know, we're forgoing, you know, billions of dollars of taxes and revenue and, and benefit for these jurisdictions to allow this stuff to continue. So it is it is a bit mind boggling. And you're right. It is it is unfair in, to to a significant degree that, again, the folks that are able and willing to pay those taxes and go through the licensing and probity are having their market share probably meaningfully eroded by the billions that are, are going to these sites. So oh, I would, I think I would these say are, it's beyond meaningfully. I think it's yeah. unquestionably like huge, I would say the lion's share of sports betting probably still is done off share, offshore. Yeah. Yep. I, I know this is not your area, but do you have any concept of why the U.S. government or federal government or state governments aren't policing this? You know, I mean, that's a great question. I've I've had some conversations with the AGA and other other folks and other regulators to date. I think that's a that's hard, hard to answer that question. I think we do have to step back and say, you know, we are in what is traditionally viewed as as a sin business, right? So whether it's you know alcohol, cigarettes, cannabis, nobody's waking up and worrying about, oh, poor, you know, woe is me, you know, OSB operator, right? They're focused on, you know, uh, more mainstream, you know, industries are viewed as important or pivotal to, to commerce. So it's just, unfortunately, the nature of the beast, we are in the gaming industry sometimes, and while we're certainly all in and, and are, you know, fully versed and aware of what's going on, right? We're not a priority versus, you know, the, the airline sector or transportation or other things that are, pivotal to day-to-day -day society. And that's, that is what it is. We can do better, Joel. We can do better. Uh, ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, we need to close some of these loopholes, uh, you know, that exist currently. I think that's a win for, you know, at least everybody that's going through regulation. Generally, I, I, I like the UK regulation framework a lot more than the state's regulation, but, you know, I, I think they have the same problem of offshore betting and, uh, and lack of enforcement against offshore betting and, and, and I think it's it's really um, it's bad. Ultimately, it's bad for the consumer because they have worse choice, worse prices, all those kinds of things. Listen, I think we do show well, right? When you look back at what happened in crypto and things like that, I mean, you know, I tell people constantly, listen, your your money is safe in a sports book. I mean, there's so much regulation and auditing, and you know, your funds have to be you know uh, put into a separate account, right? So there's a lot of great consumer protections baked in. And I think that's a positive for this industry. And that's why I do think given this little bit of a shakeout that we're seeing in these other, you know, gaming businesses, because I, I felt like for a long time, crypto uh, was just was just another form of wagering. And I'm sure there will be a place for it in society over time. You know, at least there are a lot of protections built into gaming. I think that's a, that's a positive for the industry. I mean, there's to me, there's very few real world applications for crypto outside of criminal money laundering <laughs> so i'm i'm not a fan of crypto at all i think i think there's you know there's some cases of emerging markets where you know banking is traditionally difficult and stuff like that there i can kind of see some 
a case for for crypto just sort of being a a, a way to transfer money um, outside of a crappy banking system. But short of that, generally speaking, I think that crypto is not uh, solving any problem that society has. And, and I think it's making it worse in a lot of cases. Well, there was news last week. I mean, there was a big short seller report that made made its headway around here in the U.S. on uh, on on Square, or I'm sorry, Block, which is essentially, you know, the cash app, right? So I found that a very interesting read. It, it sent that stock moving downward significantly. But if you kind of read the fine print, in the report, and obviously this is all subject to debate, but you know that was probably facilitating some illegal behavior, right? And when I just read about the consumer, you know, you know, you compare that to getting a, you know, if I sign up for XYZ Sportsbook, I got to put my driver's license in, my social security, all sorts of other information, geo location. Very little of that occurring in money transfer, which is pretty mind blowing when you think about it. You mentioned a few times that you think the gray hair, quote unquote, gray hair approach to this space is going to pay dividends in the sense that, you know, people who have a little bit more maturity and some business experience. Um, what do you think the young entrepreneurs should be doing in the space? Do you, do you think that they should go to another sector or try to join one of the gray hairs? Or like, what's your advice to sport trade and profit? Because those are run by both young guys. Yeah, no, and I know those folks really well, and I think you know quite interesting what what they're doing. So it's not to say that you know twenty something year olds can't be successful. So there's plenty of uh, of instances of that happening. I think you know what I would really what I advise most you know these younger companies to do is is really think about uh, you know slowing down a little bit to the extent they can. We're we're advising a lot of folks that have sort of maybe raised you know seed or you know a rounds who are finding it more difficult. Um, to, to say, listen, you know, reduce your cash burn, try to, you know, find your lane, try to find some proof points of success. Think about bringing on some strategic partners uh, where you can align with your business and really just get through this kind of down, you know, period in the cycle. Because again, back to my earlier comments, I mean, the TAM is, is substantial. The industry is only going to grow. If you think about where we are in OSB or iGaming versus where bricks and mortar retail was versus e-commerce 15, 20 years ago, that transition is happening and, and nothing is going to stop that. So it's really, um, you know, just just stay focused, try to get lean and ride this point in the cycle out. And it's it's we're going to we're going to come out on the other side of this. And you want to be one of those folks that survives and has some gray hair. And has some gray hair and some more stories too. You can advise the next, uh, you know, startup when you're, you know, when you're ancient like us. I was looking back through old photos and I, I saw pictures of before I had kids and after kids. So I don't know if that that was the change, but oh man, it goes fast once you start graying. It goes fast. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? What do I want to be when I grow up? I'd say a rock star like Jimi Hendrix behind me. But uh, you, you want know, to die at twenty seven is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've got an 11 year old that plays electric guitar really well, so I can live vicariously through him. So one day he'll be performing, you know, on some massive stage, and I'll be the the old dad in the back cheering him on with the cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Joel. Well, thanks for thanks, jump, uh, jumping on the call and doing the podcast with us. It was a pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>